Welcome to the Movie Heaven, Movie Hell podcast with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers that like to talk about famous directors' work. Well, we'll try and do some unfamous directors as well if we ever get the chance. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's say well-known directors. Well-known directors, indeed. There we go. So uh, we're up to the letter L. Yeah. So, uh, Keith, what's our what's our pick for L? Well, L is one of those actually that there was a, an abundance of uh, uh, directors we could have chosen. You know, of all different styles, everything from sort of Lean to uh, uh, Link later to to Lynch. You know, there, there's loads in there. But the one we've chosen today, or should I say, you've chosen, and I think there's probably a story as to why, is John Landis. Yes, we've gone with John Landis and uh, several reasons. Uh, first of all, being that um, he was very much a big part of my childhood growing up, even though I didn't realise it. Uh, my dad was a fan of uh, two of our picks. So all right. I'm not going to. Yeah. So I saw them quite a lot growing up. And also, you know, was very influenced by one of the soundtracks as well, music wise. Mm hmm. Oh, so I got to not only meet him, but actually film a intro that he did for American Wealth in London. Yeah, he was having a screening at the London Zoo. And this was through Volkswagen. That's uh, right. I've seen this. This is very good. Are you going to put a link to this or are you not allowed? Of course. No, of course I can. You can. Yeah. It's up on my, it's up on my YouTube page. Right, well, right. It's just, it's, yeah, I'll put, the, there's two videos. There's the... Um, intro that I shot mm -hmm. with Paul Davis, who's the director of the documentary Beware the Moon. And there is also what Volkswagen shot on the day. And I was very lucky to actually go down to London Zoo and, you know, to be there. So that was kind of like my payment for, for doing that. But I got to spend an hour with John Landis. And it was, wow. you know, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, I'm going to be somebody you know i not idolized but you really know and you sort of ah oh, you know what's it going to be like and he is just like uh, he's just full of energy i mean he came in now i mean he didn't take much notice of me because this is the first time he've ever he's ever met me but he knows paul davis very well because of course documentary and yeah stayed friends and so he was like showing him like this thriller book that's just that was just about to be released and also, while we were there, um, he was going through the uh, electronic press kit for Burke and Hare because at that time he was in the sort of final part post-production on that film. And I do remember, so he's doing emails, he's watching this and there's us getting ready to do this, um, you know, intro with us. And Simon Pegg comes up and he says, oh... John Landis, I've, I've, I've loved him for a long time. You know, Animal House, American Wealth, London Blues Brothers. And he, he goes, yeah, they, they always pick those films. And I say, yeah, they never mention Innocent Blood. And he goes, oh, The Free Amigos. <laughs> and I went, and I, I didn't say anything, but inside my head I went, oh, sh I didn't realise he directed that. <laughs> you know? Right, right. It was like, oh, my God. I've... <laughs> it was like, how did I not know he'd not directed? that he directed Free Amigos. It's it's obvious, but 
Well, there you go. I didn't realise it. Well, there but, you go. Um, and what, what was he like? Because, I mean, he seems... I, I've obviously watched a lot of his interviews and stuff over the years, and he, and he seems like a massively charismatic and, and, and fun kind of guy. I mean, you know, did he live up to that when you spoke with him? Oh, certainly. He was he was just a ball of energy. I mean, uh, you know, the Energizer Bunny's got nothing on him. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I mean, he was just doing so much stuff at the same time. It was just, um, I, I've never seen anybody like that. I mean, I was just got, getting tired looking at him. But uh, the one thing that, um, so we, he was still working and he was, you know, he was about to be picked up. So we had only had like a short window of time to, sh- to shoot him because most of this hour we had with him is gone, you know, because he's doing other things. So we set up to do this shot by the, the River Thames. And so we're all set up and we're waiting and we're waiting and waiting. We see this car pull up and uh, I'm thinking, oh, what's, oh, is he not going to do this then? Is he going to go and drive off? But no, thankfully he came. He, he came out the house, came over to us, and he's like, "Right," um, and he he directed me. He said, "Where's the shot? Where's it? Where are you cutting into the shot?" Shot, and I was like, um, "Waist high." He said, "No, no, cut into my arm." So I changed. I zoomed in a bit, changed the shot for him, and then we did you know a couple of takes, and brilliant, done. And then off he went. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I, lo- I love the fact that he set up the shot for you, though. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I, you I mean, had to have some kind of control. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he's a guy that, I mean, he's had quite a um, a fascinating life when you think about it. Like, um, mm. you, you know, he obviously sort of has been in the film industry his entire adult life really starting off as a sort of gopher and assistant director on, on films like Kelly's heroes and whatever. Right. And, um, even worked as a, as a stunt double as well. Um, sort of after that, is that right? Have I, have I got that correct? Yeah. That, that's correct. I mean, he even performed a stunt in one of the films we're going to. Oh, he did. About. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> he, he's, he's a director who loves having, um, you know he always has um oh what's the term i'm looking for you know like hidden things in dvd uh, easter eggs easter eggs he oh, loves having, he loves loves having easter eggs in his film yes he does because uh he always has that phrase see you, see next, you next wednesday, wednesday. yeah no, absolutely which is uh, i believe is that the first thing he wrote or something is that right it's uh, I'm I'm not quite sure what the law is. I think it is some. I think that is the case. But he he uses that title in a lot of his films. I think more of his '80s films, less so going into the '90s and you know the noughties. Right. Okay. Do you know something I I had no idea about him, and I read this at the weekend, and uh, when I was doing a bit of research for this, and I, I'm actually. I'm so surprised I didn't know this that I'm actually starting to wonder if it's not true, if it's if it's actually not true, and it's it's a a fact that's appeared online that that is wrong. Yeah, um, as What's you that? know, I'm a massive massive James Bond fan, as you know, and mm-hmm. apparently he was an uncredited co-writer for the Spy Who Loved Me, and I'd never heard that's that correct. before. Is that is that no, that is actually that's, true? That's correct. Is oh wow, I, I can't true. believe I didn't know they, that. <laughs> <laughs> there was there was a lot of writers on that. Oh, what kind of a fucking Bond fan am I then? Hey, eh? that's bloody useless that I didn't know that, isn't it? Terrible. 
Yeah, but I mean, I, I only know that because I've heard it in in an interview he did, and uh, when he was talking about the when he was writing um, American Wealth in London, right? That was the script that he he wrote. That well, he came up with the idea for it when he was on location doing Kelly's Heroes. That's right. And he wrote the script, and he sort of showed it around for a long time. It was a long time trying to be made. And I think from that he got the um, the spy loved me gig from that one. Interesting. So, yeah. Okay. I mean, timeline wise, that would kind of work because that would have mm. been before, obviously, he started yeah. directing. Um, so that that would have would have kind of made sense. I mean, the the time I first became aware of of John Landis actually was um, with the. You know, again, growing up in the sort of video age, uh, the fir the first album I ever bought was actually um, a CD. So that that was in the digital age. My God! And it, and it was... Bloody hell, Keith, you are the master of suspense. Go on, no, tell us I, what I, is I, it? Well, I, what could it be? I bought Michael Jackson's Bad, yeah, on on CD. Oh, okay. Right? But as a result, yeah. that made me then, you know, obviously look at other Michael Jackson stuff, and of course, Thriller. Was the yeah that I, I know obviously Scorsese had directed the bad video, but you know Thriller was 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 very famous for having been directed by Landis, and um, you, you know obviously um, coming from what he'd done previously, I, I'm guessing with the whole transformation yes stuff that's but, right. Uh, um, Michael Michael Jackson was a big fan of American Wealth in London, and you know got him on board to do it but i think what the amazing thing about that video was was the making of thriller that's right because that was such self-promotion not just for michael jackson but for john landis as well yeah because that's i think that's how a lot of people sort of sort of knew john landis or first time they actually saw him on screen um i, I think we have to mention the twilight zone thing yeah I, I think, you know, because we're, we're not, it's not one of our picks. I'm saying that now. It's not one of our picks because it's, you know, it's an anthology film. We've got other directors in there. And I think as a total film, it works. You know, there's like one story in it I don't like, which is the Spielberg one. I think it doesn't quite fit in with the rest of my god but yes no i know what you mean <laughs> yeah because the rest are more horror tinged and his one is very kind of safe and but everybody knows about the accident that happened on the twilight zone set and but i, I will give landis's due he put his hands up and he you know he went to court and everything for it and i've seen i saw this documentary online where they were talking about the accident and the thing was that over in uh, Malaysia, where Canon films were shooting, they had loads of helicopter accidents. You know, local crew. Yeah, I, this is what this documentary was saying, and they interviewed a few people and stuff. But yet, you know, the Canon group never prosecuted. You know, and at the end of the day, Landis was... You know, he was found not guilty and, you know, it was, you know, it, it was a big black mark on him for, for a long time. Yeah. You know, but. Oh, no, it was. I remember. At least I mean, he, at least he faced up to it. Yeah. I mean, you know, the one thing about filmmaking, but 
passionate as we all are and much as we love it, you know, um, the most important thing is obviously always safety. And of course, nobody needs to get hurt in any way, shape or form or, or you know, and obviously <laughs> death being the, the, the worse. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a shame that, you know, that that publicity did surround him for, um, well, years didn't it decades if i remember right and uh yeah um yeah well yeah i mean to to the point that we're still we're still talking about to this day yeah you know um i know it's one of those subjects you just do not bring up with john landis if you're ever in the room with him because you know he, he he's gone through it he doesn't want to know about it and i can't blame him i mean it's it's one of those things that it could have happened to anybody it could have it could have happened to Spielberg, mm -hmm. you know, it was just, it was by the grace of God that it didn't happen to the other guys. It just unfortunately happened to John Landis shoot. And from what we know, it's, it was an accident, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's just, a, it's a, it's a shame that it, you know, because who knows what would have happened to John Landis's career if he, if that hadn't happened to him. Yeah, no, absolutely. Would it have turned out the same, or would it? Hmm. We don't know, absolutely. But you know, um, he he does. You know, regardless of that, he does have a you know fairly impressive and fairly varied body of work out there. Yes. Oh, he he does indeed. He does indeed. So, let's move on to our picks for movie heaven so keith what is your pick for movie heaven right well with this one i didn't agonize too much over it like i normally do with these things i just went for something that you know had an impact on me um growing up and that was the aforementioned american werewolf in london um which i again you know this is all from the the, the home video era that we love talking about but um I remember before I actually saw the film itself, uh, I remember seeing posters and images from this film. Um, I remember, you know, not only the famous poster of, you know, his face sort of transforming into the werewolf, but I remember the shot of him looking at his hand as his hand is in, in deforms in front of his yeah. face. Um, so I'd seen all of these pictures long, long before I'd actually seen the um that the, the film itself and the reason I saw the film as usual was was thanks to my dad <laughs> who uh, who rented it on um, VHS um, thinking that you know I, I think he thought it was going to be more of a straight horror movie perhaps and slightly less of this hybrid horror comedy thing that it's known as but I've seen John Landis interviewed and he actually doesn't apparently he doesn't like it referred to as a as a horror comedy he he looks at it as a horror film with with you know humorous elements i, I think i think is the way he described that, it that's correct yeah that's correct um though i i have to say i have very strong memories of this when i was very young because um when it came out in 81 uh i was going to a dentist down i mean i was about five when this came out and my parents took me to a dentist down in central London near Leicester Square. And I actually remember them playing the trailer oh, wow. on like a, a TV monitor outside. I, I, I remember hearing the, the music 
and and seeing the big posters and stuff that's what i remember i don't know if that's true or not <laughs> somebody has to confirm that for me but i do remember that and then years later um i was at a friend's um birthday party and they had taped it off the tv mm-hmm. and so uh we watched the i think we started to watch it but then it got once the wolf attack happened i just got too scared but then like the but i was i was curious about it because I, I was enjoying it up to that point and then my dad had also recorded it off the tv and he he sat down with me and we watched it and my my memory of it was at the end running out into the yard to get away from this. It really did scare the shit out of me. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I I I agree. I mean, um, you know, when I, when I did finally sort of get round to seeing this, it was I, I, you know, I was I was pretty young. I was probably too young to actually officially watch it, if you know what I mean. But um, it was already kind of a a classic by that point you know it was it was very talked about um and very referenced and um i remember when i saw it the first time the bit on the on the yorkshire moors at the beginning absolutely scared the shit out of me i mean it really did you know i found that incredibly creepy you know the bit with the nazi demons scared the shit out oh of me. yeah remember, yeah oh god because that was because um, as a kid, your family is like protection. You, you feel safe when you're with your family. So to, to see them all being killed in really horrible ways and the, mm. the next slash at the end, oof. Yeah, well, you know, it really did. Yeah. Well, the thing, I mean, the thing as he really kid. tapped into there, as you rightly said, it was the scenario because obviously, even though that was, you know, obviously a nightmare or dream sequence or whatever, he was with his family, you know, at home. Mm. And that was what was so great about that is he was in like the safest environment you could imagine. And then all hell breaks loose. And it really is quite bloodthirsty, isn't it? <laughs> now, I, I'm not quite sure what Landis's connection is to the Muppets, because uh, apart from Frank Oz appearing in a lot of his films, but the fact is that in American Wealth in London, that dream sequence at the beginning, they are watching the Muppets. They are. Yeah, that's right. They've got the, uh, I mean, I mean, Landis is one of those guys that he kind of loves to, in all of his films, I mean, in, in a lot of the picks we've got, he, he likes to have um, his director friends do cameos in it. It's kind of the to Hitchcock does, yeah. rather than him sort of doing the cameo, even though he does act and appear in a lot of films as well. Even at Fright Fest this year, he was in, um, the 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 oh, tales of Halloween. Halloween yeah he's in one of the yeah. episodes of that but uh, um no he he does like his uh his his other directors to pop up and I guess you know I mean Frank Oz as as well as being the voice of Yoda and Miss Piggy and whatever is of course a, a quite a, quite a decent director in his own right as well isn't he so um... yeah but he wasn't a director at that point <laughs> oh right this was before yes okay yes That's a really good before, point yeah. I forget we're talking yeah. 1981 here aren't we with America yeah, we well. are indeed yeah. I mean Frank Oz didn't become a director I think until the late 80s right right and I always sort of I always get mixed up I always thought that he directed Return to Oz but it was Walter Murch who directed Return to Oz yeah he just had his name in it <laughs> I think uh, I think one of Frank Oz's earliest credits might have been the Dark Crystal. Right, right, yeah. Fair so, enough. but but this is definitely before before that. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, this is one of the the one one of the things that worked really well in American Werewolf in London, apart from you know the horror elements. And I think the reason you know a lot of people refer to it as this horror comedy um, cross genre thing it is is some of the some of the characters that that appear in it. You know, like the the, the two the two in police investigators and things of that nature are absolutely hilarious. And it's those parts that you absolutely remember, isn't it? Because they work so well, you know? <laughs> it's like, he really is good at those comedy beats and those comedy moments, you know? <laughs> well, the relationship between the two main characters is is brilliant. I mean, straight away, they're, you know, joking and laughing. And, you know, it's very... Um, you know, you, you wouldn't believe these guys have been friends for a long time. I mean, I I also just love the fact that when you the first shot you see is them in the back of a truck with lambs, lambs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then they end up at the you slaughtered know. lamb, and it's like, come on, guys, yeah. fill in the gaps. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they are literally they are the sheep to the slaughter. You know, absolutely. And they say it's you know, <laughs> there's no subtlety there. It's like <laughs> you know these guys are done for but i mean it's uh, i mean it's just really well done i mean the the joke that brian glover does about remember the alamo yeah i still laugh at that joke oh it's yeah it's funny really i mean terrible it's way, yeah know? but it's, it's his accent and the way he tells it and everything is very exactly. amusing isn't it and uh and you, you know again a, 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 a pub filled with like you've got like one of Rick Mail's, the late Rick Mail now, sadly, but one of his um, yeah. early appearances is he's the chess player, isn't he, in that scene and whatever? And it's like that's right, yeah. <laughs> and that, that, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, David Norton and Griffin Dunn, um, you can see they had a bit of a laugh making that, and that definitely came across in those early scenes, you know, of, of their friendship while they were walking across the moors and and having a joke with one another and and stuff like that and it's 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 you know it's it's things like that it's those character moments that really i think make you know in addition to the horror and the wonderful effects and all that sort of thing but it's what makes the film i think a very enjoyable watch um and uh you know, obviously, we've got the uh, the lovely Jenny Agatha in there as well, who it's been brilliant yeah. to see her in recent years come into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, <laughs> yeah, she she got to kick some ass in uh, Winter Soldier. She did, which is a, which is a fantastic film. It's one of my favourites of the MCU, actually, mm. Winter Soldier. Yeah, it's it's one of the best ones. Yeah. I mean, it was that was a very good year because um, was that the same year as Guardians of the Galaxy? I think it might have been. Yes. Yes, mm. I think so. Yeah, because Guardians was very was very strong as well. It was. I it was very yeah, good. absolutely. Yeah. So and and and, I, and I'm right. I mean, I think we've talked about this possibly on um, on Car- Carpenter's podcast uh, earlier on, but uh, of course, you, you know, it was Rick Baker who did the amazing effects for this that kind of gave uh, Rob Bottin his his break, wasn't it? Because didn't he uh, right. pass on Howling yeah. so he could do this? Is that right? Is that story yes. correct? It's, it's correct. I mean, the, the thing is, I think we're going to go into some of the stories, but if you want to really know about this film, do check out the documentary Beware the Moon by Paul Davis. I mean, he he's done such a thorough job. Well, he's a friend of yours, right, Paul Davis? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I must admit, yeah. I, I um, 
I uh, invested on this uh, in, in the Blu-ray uh, and, and re-watched the film. And as soon as I'd watched the film, it made me instantly want to watch Beware the Moon, the, the, the documentary. And I have to say... And you know, the funny thing is, that? is that the running time of the film and the documentary are exactly, exactly the same. The same. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the thing with that documentary is, and, and you know, I mean, I don't know, Paul, but... Um, you can absolutely see it's a labor of love because what, what I loved about that documentary is they went into every single aspect at right from, and they followed the story right from the beginning to the end and covered every production aspect within that and literally interview everyone that they could. And I, I thought in terms of these retrospective documentaries, this is one of the strongest ones that I've ever seen, actually. I thought it was very good, very good indeed. Well, yeah, I mean, um, a total crapshoot because the, they weren't employed by Universal to make this. They, uh, Paul Davis with Anthony Bueno and Claire Bueno and the producer whose name I can't remember, they set out to make this documentary and they interviewed all the British cast and crew mm -hmm. and then took what they had to land us. I mean, they literally had to sort of hunt him down when he was in London and you know, hope to God that they could get like five minutes with him just to show him this stuff. And um, they, they, they were able to do it. They were just, you know, extremely lucky. Uh, they got Landis to watch it and he, he thought they were crazy, you know, because for one thing, they didn't have the rights to any of the footage. Mm -hmm. And of course they hadn't interviewed any of the American club, um, cast and crew so they hadn't interviewed david norton they hadn't interviewed griffin dunn at this point and they hadn't spoken to rick baker but it was you know john landis's involvement with that that then got the ball rolling and also the fact that you know universal was looking to release the 25th anniversary you know mm -hmm. of american world from london on dvd and blu-ray and here's this documentary that comes along and they didn't have to do any of the work they just were able to give them the rights to the um to the footage you know do all the interviews in america and then from that you know and they got the film you know i don't i don't know if they paid for the film or anything i know paul doesn't make any money off the dvd sales so but they were able to get it out there and uh you know it's it's done his career really good no, I mean, I, you know, I have to say, you know me, you know, I like my Blu-rays, I like mm. my DVDs, and I'm always very fucked off if they're vanilla with no extras. You know, I'm all about, I want, I want extras, I want documentaries, I want behind the scenes and deleted stuff and whatever. And um, if you like your DVD extras, this this is really good value for money because this this documentary yeah. is, um, like you said, it's a hundred and forty minutes or whatever, and it's. Um, uh, 133 minutes. 133 minutes and it's and it's uh, well, I, goes yeah. and it goes you know it really does it, you can see it's a labor of love and you can also see that landis gave a lot to it because they must yeah. have interviewed him for a whole day with the amount of um coverage that they've got in this of of, of him talking about the film and the process and um yeah it really does go into sort of every uh, aspect of the production and follows the story completely. So uh, it hats does, off to including him. including the story about how Rick Baker was was hired to do the Howling. That's right, 
And then John Landis called him up and said, we've got the money, we're about to do it. And he was like, oh, I'm doing this film at the moment. <laughs> and of course, um, he passed it on to Rob Bottin. But the thing was, I think I think Landis was always pissed off with the howling because that too also had a transformation scene that happens in daylight. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was or, or under bright lights. Yeah. I mean, it was one of it was that sort of era where suddenly, you know, all of the werewolf stuff was really, you, you know, obviously it all happened back in the early days of the Universal Monster movies and stuff. But then it had disappeared for a while, and then this is when it sort of. The early 80s was when it seemed to have its sort of reinsurgence again, wasn't it? And you had Wolf and... Yeah, The Howling came out the same year as American Wolf in London. But, I mean, at the two, I I actually prefer American Wolf in London because the thing about The Howling that always got me was the fact that there's a transformation scene in bright daylight, and that's just... I've never been a fan of that. I'm I'm not a big fan of Dog Soldiers. Right. Which was the werewolf film from the 90s. And there's a there's a bit where you know they I uh, if I'm right in saying because I haven't seen this for a long time but there's a bit where the soldiers are being chased by the werewolves and it's it looks like it's still daylight, right? And when I saw that I was like no 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 werewolves can only come out in the dark it's got to be in full moon, you know there there are these rules in place, and. Um, I don't know. I think when it comes to werewolves, I'm a bit of a stickler for that. But then at the time, I didn't kind of realise about, you know, low budget filmmaking. And, you know, if you're going to shoot an expansive scene like that running through the woods, it costs a lot of money to light those. Bits, yeah. So, well, I mean, it's it's not yeah. done Phil Marshall's, uh, sorry, Neil Marshall's career bad, has it? You know what I mean? It's like. Uh, no, 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 not at all. I mean, it's it's the film that uh, got him out there. And of course, we, we got The Descent afterwards, which is hands down one of the best british horror films we've had in a long time no absolutely absolutely but um rick baker's work in this is just absolute when when you think that this was obviously all pre you know anything done by computers this was all actually you know mechanical and makeup effects and they they're just i mean that transformation is just absolutely unbelievable and um it's oh it's it, it stands up to this day yeah I, mean, I saw american world in london at the empire leicester square and it still holds up you really can't see the seams and it, it that noise the hell out of me <laughs> and they did the wolf man and rick baker did all the creature effects for it and then they replaced it with cgi i know i know that's kind of I a mean, kick in the teeth isn't it because uh it's so annoying. I mean, they did the same thing with the Thing prequel. Yeah, yeah. When they had the, the guys who worked on the Alien films do all these, you know, practical effects, and then they just, you know, paint over them with CGI. Yeah. I mean, the the Wolfman, uh, you know, the, the uh, re- recent one, I forget which year it was now, um, but Rick Baker, I mean, when, when you think that, you know, the original, uh, you know, Lon Chaney one was, was the film that kind of inspired him and made him want to, you know, become what he's what he's become um, as a makeup yeah. artist, and then and then for them to replace all the work that he does with uh, with CG, yeah, that must have been a real kick in the teeth. <laughs> well, I can see why he's retired from the industry. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a sh- it's a shame that there are a lot of these crafts that are kind of, in some respects, 
dying crafts because of the because of technology i mean it's it's kind of one of those catch 22s it's good on one hand and sad on the other isn't it um and uh yeah i mean i i mean from what i've seen with interviews and stuff the i just my opinion but it's it does seem like uh studios kind of understand cgi a bit more than than sort of practical effects because with cgi it's people in cubicles working at computer which is you know is a, is a way a lot of these big studios work now because they're corporations mm -hmm. it's very corporate yes indeed yeah but practical effects is somebody in a workshop using their hands and materials and getting them dirty and you know coming up with all these weird and wonderful ways of doing it because it's, it's like anything and when you're making a film it's an organic process you start off with a script but the when you're shooting it it may change and it certainly is going to change in the editing i mean it's a it's a fluid arc that we work in. It's, you know, it's always changing, always progressing, you know, even when you're just doing your own film, because the, what you start off with is not what, usually is not what you're going to end with. Mm -hmm. If it's better or worse, who knows? But uh, yeah, CGI, you can just go, right, well, I want that there, 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 this and that. And, you know, we, it's just, it's not up to snuff. It, it's, it's, it's still at the point where you can tell it's cgi i mean the cgi is getting a lot better but you know when they're doing like a uh, i saw pan recently and they had a cgi character in it flying around mm -hmm. and then you think about the wire work they did you know like on hook mm -hmm. amazing stuff but you know there's a little cgi peter pan flying around and yeah you know it's, it just it just knocks you out yeah well for me you know i mean i i'm still very much of the view i'm it's a bit old school but at the same time mm. it's like all of these things are tools and usually for me the films that work best are the ones that combine the different so, yes. different techniques so you know you do you do as much as you can in camera and then you enhance it with cg or something like that and and it usually ends up looking amazing you know when, when you do that yeah. whereas when they try and recreate everything in cg it always seems to miss something and uh, that's not to say there aren't some wonderful examples out there but uh but yeah i, I know what yeah. you mean and uh yeah i i think i think that that's sort of something for another indeed podcast. it is yeah we, we could we could we could go on for about that for hours we could that's, that's a whole nother yeah. podcast as i like to say you know but uh this going back to american Werewolf in london i think also why it works so well is the fact that you actually care for the main character and you also care for the relationship between him and jenny agatha's character definitely yeah because without that relationship in the middle you know, it. I don't think it would be as scary or as sort of memorable, or you know, because the ending does knock you for six, mm. really. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, that is that is the thing that works nicely with this, and you know, we have to credit, you know, uh, um, John Landis big time for this because not only did he direct this, but he obviously wrote it as well, and. Yeah, yeah, you know, the, the, the dialogue and the banter between the characters and the relationships and, of course, the way they're played by these actors as well. Um, yeah, you really do. I mean, that, that's the thing that sort of stand out with this film, in my opinion, is, is it does work as a horror film. It is very horrific. 
But at the same time, it is a bit of a laugh as well. And, um, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you've got these these characters that you totally buy into, whether whether they're the main characters or, or even the bit part characters in this are very well cast and very well performed. Um, so, you know, that all works very well as a story itself. I mean, it's, uh, you, you know, as you were saying, you kind of like the just the films that stick to the 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 werewolf mythology which this absolutely yeah. does as well um yeah. we, i have to say there's a lovely little touch and I, I only noticed this last time i saw it was um after um david kessler the david norton character comes back from the zoo mm -hmm. after he's like night of feeding <laughs> yeah he's like i'm full of energy you know i feel you know because he's been going around eating these people. Absolutely. He's, you know, he's had like a good meal. And then when he realizes what he does, what he's done, he goes, Oh, I feel like I'm going to be sick. Yeah. No, <laughs> it is. It is. It's very, it's very, it's very witty. It's very well. Cause obviously you get all of that bit in between there where he's running around naked and he has to steal the balloons from the boy and he has to uh, dress right. up in the woman's coat and stuff. Ah, yeah. Right. This here's 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 a fact. Here's a little trivia for you that's not in the making of, but the you know the uh, wolf den that he wakes up in. Yes. London Zoo doesn't have a wolf den. <laughs> that was just specially made for the film, and they actually had to bring the wolves in. So because when we were at London Zoo for the screening, people kept going, "Well, where's the wolf den? Where's the wolf pit?" And they're like, "We don't have one." It's, it does, doesn't exist. It was just only made for the film. Right. Okay. Interesting. Interesting bit of trivia. That's good. No, I mean, um, it, you know, it, it does work very well. Um, and, you, you, you know, it does have, like, like you said, it's got this kind of, you know, fairly heartfelt ending um, uh, to, to, to the whole thing. But also pacing wise, uh, and I noticed this again when I rewatched it, is, you, you know, it, it, it's not it's not a particularly long film, but there's a lot happens in it and it does move along at quite a satisfying pace. You know, it's it's it does. It, well, it, it goes very quickly. I mean, it's uh, I know we've been saying, you know, one three three, but what we mean is one hour, 33 minutes. It's a, it's a 90 minute film. Yeah. No, absolutely, and, and and with that, and within that amount of time, a lot happens. But it's it's things that you actually care for. Yeah, well, the thing is, a lot happens plot wise, but it doesn't at the same time uh, take away from characterization because you you get a lot of that. And even this this is the very clever thing with this, even with the bit parts, even with the Brian Glover. And, uh, you know, the, the two police guys and Frank Oz and, you know, you know, all of these smaller parts in it, you still get, um, you, you know, a wonderful opportunity for these characters to be quite defined and, and rounded and, and interesting. Um, so it really is an interesting, interesting watch. Um, it is. And I just want to say something else as well. Um, it, it, I thought it was really a brilliant turn to have the Griffin Dunn character come back as a decomposing corpse. Yeah, a, a very gross decomposing corpse yeah. as well. It's pretty but well I mean, done. I, it, I, I, 
I, I've never really seen anything like that before American Wealth in London. I think it's it's one of those things where it's kind of be slightly ripped off if you see it in other films now, where a dead character comes back and starts talking to. But the way it's done, it's just really well done. Yeah. Because, you know, because he is, as part of the horror, I remember as a kid that it scared me again, seeing him with the torn up face. Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time. But as an as an adult, you you quite like it because you can you're seeing that you know his friend still cares for him even though he's trapped in the undead. Yeah, that he's undead and uh, he's uh, you know he can't uh, pass over, can't have peace until the uh, werewolf bloodline is uh, is killed off. And uh, it's just again, it's just it's a brilliant. Um, thing that happens in the script yeah no it's a brilliant pathos for the for the you know for the main character because obviously you you, you know um i mean what 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 better thing you know he wants to he wants his his friend and whatever to be at peace but he knows that the only way he can do that is for him to die and you you, you know that yeah. that is a uh you know a massive um a massive thing but it's really well done but what what Landis has done with this that is so genius, I think, is the sort of juxtaposing that with with the humour, because you, you know we, we can't go without mentioning the um, uh, the, the, the the porno film in Piccadilly Circus, <laughs> and, and 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 you know again, which he may he actually shot that um, see you yes, next Wednesday yes. porn film, didn't he? Film, and, yeah. and but. Yeah. It, it's so hilarious because you've got that going on in time with, you, you, you know, the corpse or the corpses in the cinema. And, uh, you, you know, it just I don't know. It's just really clever. It really works. And you've got the soundtrack. It does. Yeah. It kind of kind of like makes when the policeman comes down and sees the, you know, the dead body and whatever. The, and, and the soundtrack makes that funny because of what's going on in the porno film. And it's well, like, you I, know. I I'll say no. It, it, that bit it didn't make it funny. It was it was just it was an interesting. Instead of having some sort of scary music, you had something going on in the. Background. It was layered. Yeah, it, it had yeah. layers. And and but the the tension was there. Instead of having some sort of you know scary track like you know some violins going. Yeah. You know something like that. You you had that going on. I mean, the whole idea what's more scary than life still continuing something's still going on while this horrific thing is going on yeah. in that cinema but um uh, it's it's a great film i mean if you've not seen it fucking hell mate get out watch it yeah yeah you won't regret <laughs> so it now this i mean this is this is the month for watching it i mean it's october you know, halloween <laughs> absolutely great film for it absolutely a great film for halloween so so yeah so for me it was it was a pretty much a no-brainer to choose the movie heaven because you know i yeah. think this this really works um it's really strong it's really strongly written directed performed and you know the special effects in it are or the creature effects in it and whatever are um well second to none really and i agree with your comment about it still holds up today it does you watch it yes, and it's yeah. it, it's flawless it, it really 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 is is imaginative and 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 works very nicely so um and you're right he did do a stunt in it as well didn't he he was the he did the guy. do a stunt in it yes <laughs> when they have this carnage in in um Piccadilly Circus, which that alone is an amazing feat to have done that, you know, stunt work and yeah. 
Uh, as I say, watch the documentary. It goes into it so much. There's so much planning and stuff that went into it. But um, but yeah, this it is funny. You you sort. Of, I think Landis is actually has two stunts in it because I in the documentary you see him on the top of the bus as well. As it's that's right, as it spins. Yeah, yeah, because uh, it's yeah. Um, Vic Armstrong, yeah. isn't it, that does the bump the bus that's right. stunt. And um, that's right. Yeah, they they have that sort of camera at the top of the bus, so you can see the people in it and. Landis is definitely one of them, but then he's also yeah. the guy that goes flying through the uh, the window, or not quite goes flying through the window. It sort of goes <laughs> a bit wrong, doesn't it? But uh, it does, yeah. And, and I know yeah. he got a but ragging like... from the stunt team, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> the crew were all there with scorecards, and they all gave them a tip. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... but yeah, as I say, it's it's it, it's really well covered in the documentary, so check that yeah. out. A lot of fun to watch, but both the film and Indeed. the documentary, actually. Um, I hadn't yeah. seen, I'll be honest, I, I'd seen the film before, obviously. I hadn't actually seen the documentary before now. And uh, I was like, my God, how did I miss this? This is this is a gem. So um, I don't know whether Paul Davis listens to these, but um, well done, sir, is what I would say, because that's very good. <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to ask him uh, next time I see him. Anyway. So moving on uh, to my pick for movie heaven. Now, you know, I'd, it's this is such an iconic film, and uh, I, I just have to say, you know, we're on a mission from God, <laughs> and you know exactly what the film is. It's the Blues Brothers. Now, again, this is a film that was shown to me by my dad when I was quite young, and uh, he did sit me down and he warned me there was going to be a lot of swearing. <laughs> and um, at this point, I had been known for copying dialogue off the screen, <laughs> including a famous line of swearing from Airplane. Ah, right. Fair <laughs> enough. Where, where I was told that if I didn't stop swearing, I would not be allowed to watch anymore. Yeah, well, if you're going to do it, still from the best, eh? I mean, you can't go <laughs> much wrong with Airplane, let's be honest. So <laughs> I know, but I was like five at the time so <laughs> you, you never want to hear a five-year-old swearing it's not nice. no. <laughs> but uh yeah but it was um i remember watching it and i just absolutely loved it i mean it's it's funny these films where it it's a musical and it's also a chase film and it's a comedy and it's just it's it's just, it's 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 this amazing melding of stuff that on paper shouldn't have worked, but yet on the screen works brilliantly. Yeah, I was gonna say it's bizarre, isn't it? It is quite a bizarre film, but you're right; it has right. a charm and it works really well. So yes, <laughs> the, the the story about the making of this film was that um, the Blues Brothers was a popular sketch on SNL, and um, and Dan Aykroyd had written a script. But the it wasn't a conventional script, um, according to the documentary that um, John Lunds compared it to the Yellow Pages. It was it was like a phone book. It was so big, and he'd gone into the history of everybody, all the band members, um, all the characters. Is they had like police records, the crimes they'd done, the gigs they played. I mean, it was expansive, but it's not the way to make a film. But the thing was, they got the money to make this film very quickly. And they had to do a lot in a very short amount of time. Now, usually that kind of 
you know, they. I've read articles from the time about when this was being made and everybody sort of foresaw this as being a, you know, a disaster in the making because it was just this, it was quite a big budget film for what it was. I mean, I mean, for a start, they destroy uh, a shopping center. They um, crash so many cars. Mm -hmm. I think at that point, it was the record for the most cars crashed. And, you know, and also the fact that, um, you know, John Belushi was at the, you know, the height of him taking his drugs. And if you've ever seen the film Wired, you've seen him, you know, where they couldn't get him out of his, you know. uh, Trailer. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Trailer. I was about to say that. I mean, they they, they did say a story there, you know, at one point in filming, John Belushi went, he, you know, he he did like a high piss whistle and his car just sort of did a U-turn and picked him up and tr- he drove off and they didn't know where he'd gone. You know, a complete stranger had picked him up. But but the thing is, though, the, the thing about this film is, is that the passion comes for the blues. John Belushi, you know, was very much into his blues and was, you know, a big advocate of it. And it's what where the Blues Brothers came from. Mm-hmm. And you can feel that coming through, the love of, of blues in this. And, you know, all the cameos, Cab Calloway, um, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, um, Bo Diddley, mm-hmm. Ray Charles, you know, all these sort of, people involved in soul and blues and they they're just really given their 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 moments to shine in this film i mean it's really it's really well done and the the musical numbers they don't seem to they they work really well they work within the confines of the story they do yeah because because i must admit i think we've talked about this before how sometimes musicals can be a bit sort of jarring depending on how they're done but i think in the case of this film it does actually kind of work because the film is quite you know bizarre in many respects and uh, um and of course i you know i i know what you're saying about john belushi um you, you know being sort of at the height of his his drug addiction at this point but i i guess obviously he'd already had a successful collaboration with um john landis on, on, on animal house previously yeah so right. they, they, i That's guess right. they were, were kind of friends going into this but i i've also heard that um he did kind of drive landis mad during the production of this <laughs> yeah that, that that is what the the stories are but um i th- i john landis has to take a lot of the um he, he he was able to take that, you know, phone book of a script and turn it into this film that is it's just the joy to watch. I mean, it was on TV like last week when I was down in Leeds, and and then I came back and I watched it again, and I was I I thought you know I'm just going to watch it up to the point I saw it from the TV and I actually watched it from beginning to end and I just enjoy it and it's just film it's a film. It's just it's just full of I wouldn't say it's full of joy, but it's 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 very sort of um honest. Even though there's some silly things in there, it's it's never 
played to be silly it's all taken very seriously and you know i mean like the fact that um joliet jake blues can play gets out of prison and his brother elwood blues picks him up in a police <laughs> yeah and he's not happy about <laughs> he's not happy that they traded in the caddy for this police car but once um once uh, elwood pr- shows him it's worth yes by driving over the bridge, it's like, well, yeah, this is a good car, isn't it? <laughs> you know, he's a bit more appreciative of it. And there is that that relationship between those two characters. And I mean, also, I mean, it's just full of, you know, quotable lines. Oh, I mean, you know, we're on a mission from God. You know, it's, um, you know, it's dark. We're wearing sunglasses. <laughs> Hit it. Um, you know, the penguin, <laughs> yes. what a character! <laughs> you know, I mean that is still makes me laugh all the time because she just can't stand bad language. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, no, it's very you know, like you said, it's it's memorable, quotable. It's also you know, its music is is very memorable. Um, and, and yeah. y- you know, a- a- any 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 disco, it's gonna get you know, at any wedding or whatever where they have a disco, it's gonna get played, <laughs> isn't it? You know, <laughs> that's it. I mean, this is one of the uh, one of the first soundtracks I actually owned because I, I just loved the music in it. This is it. The selection of music in this film is second to none. It's really good and. as I say, the the tracks used in it kind of forward the story as well in places. Sometimes they don't, but it's a lot of fun. I mean, it was the first time I ever heard the Rawhide theme. Oh, right. Yes, of course. Yeah, for me too, actually. Yeah, that's that's very true. Yeah. (laughs) Also, I I love the fact that they give so much time to them getting the band back together. Absolutely, yeah. You know? Yeah. In the sequel, it's, it's brushed over very quickly. But in this, but in the original, they give it time. They actually, you know, I mean, the whole scene where they're trying to get Mr. Fabulous in his restaurant. <laughs> and that is so good. How much for the women? How much for the little girl? <laughs> it's like, excuse me, waiter. These guys, you know, can we have another table? These guys, they really smell. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but. When I was younger, I had a hell of a crush on Carrie Fisher. Oh, yeah. I, I think I think yeah. any guy of our generation, particularly after seeing Return of the Jedi, <laughs> 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 uh, 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 and you know that that uh, Jabba's sex slave bikini thing. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think everybody knew what you're talking yeah, about. <laughs> I was going to say that, that I don't think there was a guy yeah. that didn't have a uh, a crush on on Carrie Fisher. Yeah, but I mean it. But she was, you know, she was great in that small role. She was just, this, you know, this woman that kept turning up and trying to kill them all the time. I mean, I love the fact that she had a, a makeup saloon that was called Curl Up and Die. <laughs> yeah. I've got a question. Was she with Dan Aykroyd at this at this point? Because they 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 were in a relationship together, weren't they, at one point? Was it? I don't know. Probably. I mean, maybe. I know they, she was good friends with John Belushi. Yeah. And his death was one of the things that sort of, you know, it affected. Her. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I have to say, I, I I know she had a lot of. Um, I think it was more drink than drugs, wasn't mm-hmm. it? But then, I mean, I say, I mean, Hollywood of the time. I mean, there's a lot of dabbling. Yes, you know, 
So I'm not, I mean, I don't really know. I'm sure, I'm sure other people do. I'm, I know she's written lots of books about her past and her relationship with people and her, especially with her mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was that, um, actually turned it into a film, wasn't it? Oh, what, Postcards yeah. from the Edge? That's the one. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I remember yeah, that. It was when Carrie Fisher became a, a scriptwriter. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, and especially a, a script doctor. Script doctor, she, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, because um, she rewrote Julia Roberts' dialogue in Hook. Right. Because originally she was sounding a bit like Madonna. Okay. <laughs> That's what I remember. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, just, I say, all these sort of great cameos, and they just fit. Yeah. Well, Spielberg's in this one, isn't he? Oh, God, yeah. Well, there you go. You're talking about, you know, director's cameos. Yeah. That's the biggest one ever. Yeah, no, big time. I think it's the most screen time he's ever had as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's actually got some dialogue. Yeah. I think John Candy's great in it as the probation officer. I mean, the two cops who are constantly chasing after them, they're great. <laughs> the The good old boys. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The good old the boys. The whole bit with the good old boys. And let's not forget the um, Illinois Nazis. You know, they, they just make enemies on the way, but it's the, the way they do it is kind of, you know, again, help. It just, it's, it just adds to the story. And, of course, then you've got, you know, it all cul- culminates in this chase scene at the end where they're going through the streets of Chicago. And I I just love this. It's it's such a silly thing, but I just love it. I love the fact that when you, you start seeing, like, the police and the army and the SWAT team that, <laughs> that are going, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> you see them doing different forms of that. <laughs> this is brilliant. And, you know, then you could also see that a lot of the guys who were involved in that were the real deal. They weren't actors. They were actually, you know, people who worked either in that building or were real police officers or or firemen. And, you know, it's just, it was just, it's organized chaos. It, it is. Great. I mean, it is a, it is a unique, uh, it's a unique film and a unique bit of filmmaking when you think of it. I mean, you know, when you think something's taken from a, a, a musical sketch on a on a on a you know uh, Saturday night show <laughs> and, and and turned into something like this, um, you, you know, it is quite that is quite an achievement in itself. Uh, that it that it's an achievement that it works at all. <laughs> uh, we know of many SNL sketches that have been turned into films that didn't work. Yes, I mean, I think the last one that really worked very well was Wayne's World. Yes, yes, Wayne's World did work extremely well. Um, well, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, th- th- this, this, for all its bizarreness, this actually uh, is quite entertaining. Uh, in fact, I, I do want to, this is making me even more want to sort of go back and um, go back and watch it because, uh, unfortunately, after our sort of earlier podcast, I always try and make it a rule to watch all the films right before the podcast. But in this particular instant, I didn't actually get the chance. to. I revisited my ones, but didn't get a chance to look at this one um, again. But, you, you know, you, 
you're reminding me of all the things that I thought was cool about it. So it kind of makes me yeah. think, shit, yes, I need to go watch this this weekend, you know? <laughs> I, 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 I'll tell you my theory of why it works. And the reason why it works is they're given a task to do. They have to raise money to save the orphanage. It's very simple. Yeah. But that's the one thing throughout the whole film that's sort of driving them is the fact that they have to raise this money to save the orphanage and they can't steal. And that's what leads to why they get the band back together, why they go on the road trying to do gigs, why they get the uh, that big amphitheater, which they fill. Mm-hmm. And then once they get the money, getting it back to Chicago, getting it back to the excesses in time to save the orphanage. And without that, mm-hmm. the film wouldn't work. No, absolutely. Their, their, their mission their mission from God as the catalyst was, um, yeah, well, you're right. It is the structure that everything else hangs quite nicely from. And, um, you, you know, that's the thing. Again, you, you are kind of with these guys on this journey, yeah. a bit like we were saying with, with uh, American Werewolf, the, the, you know, the fact that uh, you, you kind of like the characters and you, you're sort of with the characters. The same with this. I mean, I, I, I would say this is probably one of um, one of Landis's strengths, actually, in his, his writing and, and, and directing is, is the fact that you end up uh, in, you know, in most cases, not in all of them, but <laughs> certainly in the, these earlier <laughs> movies anyway, you, you end up, um, you, you know, very much being with the camp characters and you know you can say the same with animal house and and you know quite a few of the other films that he that he did in that period um and 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 this yeah is definitely uh no exception this in, in fact this is this is probably it working at its best i would say yeah yeah it does indeed so yeah um if you've never watched it Again, another recommendation. Go out and see the Blues Brothers. Oh, yeah. And get the soundtrack. And also get the two live albums they did as well. They're, as a live act, they're really good. Yeah. Well, I'm sure I'm sure there's probably probably everybody has, has at least heard the music, even if they haven't seen the film, because, you know, that has been well, yeah. massively, uh, massively best-selling um, and, you, you know, still remains popular to this day in, in many respects. You can still you know, hear some of them playing <laughs> on some of the stations yeah. out there. Well, yeah, and that's the fact there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, what do you call them? Uh, they're like... Um, oh, tribute bands. Acts. Tribute bands. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Uh, well, I'm... saying that, I, I, I just... I, 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 I'm so stupid of me how I forget this, but one of the actors I worked with, the, the late Matt Stokes, he was an Elwood's impersonator in the blues brothers live show you remember when oh, it was playing fantastic. down the west end yeah 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 he was elwood yeah you know and from what i heard it was brilliant in it wow so i fuck i could i can't how do i not remember that it's terrible you know yeah but um yeah but it's 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 legacy sort of lives on oh very much so very much so yeah and uh like you said, you know, there, there are tribute bands and, uh, you know, if you go to theme parks and whatever, this, you know, you often yeah. have have an act that will come on and be the Blues Brothers and, you know, drive by in the in the police car <laughs> with the music playing. <laughs> and uh, 
it, it's just it is feel good it, it is it is feel good yeah. you know you do sort of uh you can't help but sort of jig along to it and be with them really so that's it but uh talking of theme parks that leads nicely on to our movie <laughs> hell selections <laughs> uh, doesn't it just yes okay doesn't it so um if you haven't guessed it keith <laughs> what is your pick for movie hell? well i mean I, I looked at his body of work and and again i didn't go on a massively mental journey with this one um beverly hills cop three stood out to me um the the, the reason being i mean first of all bev just a little bit on the franchise itself um and I'm going to do one of our memory lane, uh, you know, that we like to do okay. stories. Um, I had, w- when I was growing up, I, uh, I used to have a good mate of mine, um, Wayne, who, who's recently got married. So if, if he, if he is listening to this, congratulations, Wayne. Um, congratulations. And he was one of my school friends and what we would do on a Saturday, Saturday used to be video day. And oh, okay. he, he would come over to my house or I would go over to his and we would get, uh, we know, we'd go to the video library and or we'd get maybe our parents to go to the video library because sometimes we'd see stuff <laughs> we, we maybe weren't quite old enough to see, but we had cool parents like that. And uh, we, w- yeah. we, would, we would watch films, on, you know, throughout a Saturday afternoon or whatever. And this, this was how I watched things like, you know, uh, First Blood and... Um, uh, Commando and, and the Terminator and you know all, all these different films we used to uh, watch on video um, in fact Terminator was my mate Chris so I should give him credit too um, but uh, you know in Highlander and I, I just like want to say I think I think that's a, run, a running thing because I remember I had cool, I had friends with cool parents as well and that's how I saw a lot of these sort of you know 15 and 18 rated films when I was young yeah well I mean do you know do you know for all the for all the wishing I was younger and wishing I had all the tech and whatever that, that, that there is now uh, when I was younger, um, in some respects, I actually really kind of like the time that we grew up in um, because, yeah, you, you, you know, we, we, were, we were luckier than the generation before in the fact that they used to watch some, a, f- a film at the cinema on, on television and that was it. You know, they wouldn't see it again yeah. unless it was repeated or whatever. Um, whereas we, we had the luxury with, with VHS of being able to watch the film multiple times. Uh, obviously if a film or a TV show or something we like was on, we could tape that and watch it multiple times, you know? So it was a really, um, yeah, it was really cool to do, to, to have that. And obviously now it's good to replace them all with, uh, DVDs and Blu-rays, but, uh, um you, you know uh, the, the fact that everything is just available to download now kind of kind of takes some of this charm away but but anyway it, it does yeah back yeah anyway back to my story i re- i remember that uh, one saturday uh was a really good saturday because we had uh in the day we watched uh, gremlins for the first time which okay. the first gremlins which i thought was brilliant but back to back with that we watched the original beverly hills cop which uh, oh, okay. directed by Martin Brest, which which I thought was a uh, an absolutely fantastic film. Um, it made me laugh. I liked the action in it. I mean, again, you talk about car wrecks and car chases. I don't think they quite went to the extreme that the Blues Brothers did, but there, there was a fairly big car pile up in um, at the beginning of Beverly Hills Cop, and uh, you know, it was a really really fun 
uh, action adventure movie, uh, you know, with this guy, Eddie Murphy. And, um, you know, I'd obviously seen one of his stand up uh, things. I think it was Delirious or whatever on, on VHS as well around the same time. But uh, really, yeah. really like that. And then obviously uh, in 1987, Tony Scott um, directed a sequel to it, which, you know, was still entertaining. I don't think it quite had the the magic of the original film, but it was still entertaining. And I remember there was a kid up the road that I was always really envious of because he had the Detroit Lions uh, college football jacket that Eddie Murphy wore in oh, that film right. and the one we're about to talk about, uh, which was yeah. 1994 came Beverly Hills Cop 3, directed by John Landis. Now, for a start, there were before we actually get into the film itself, there were quite a few changes in production uh, with this particular film. Um, this one was not produced by Dom Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer partnership. Um, this was actually produced by Mace Nuffield, who was on contract with Paramount um, because he'd done the Jack Ryan uh, series of films, you know, the, 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 the first lot. And um, the other thing... Okay, was, oh, was um, Clear and Present Danger done by this point? Yeah, I think by this point, um, you'd certainly had... Yeah, you'd certainly had been, the first two, maybe, yeah. maybe the first three, yeah. uh, before the first reboot. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you know, this film had some differences with, with the production um, team. It also had some differences with, with the cast in the fact that... Um, John Ashton, who played Taggart, uh, Ronnie Cox, who yeah. played uh, Sergeant Bogomil, and uh, Paul Reiser, who played Jeffrey, um, was not present in, in this film. Uh, although they did bring yeah. Serge back from the first film, played by Brosnan Pitch. Um, and they kind of replaced mm. the character of Taggart with a character played by uh, Hector uh, Elizondo. Um, yeah. And uh, also the other thing was this was the, the, the first film that didn't have the soundtrack by Harold Faltermeyer, although it did use a rescored version of the um, uh, the Axel F theme in places. Yeah, I, I that was the thing. The Axel F tune does not work as an orchestral piece. No. It, oh. Exactly. It was rescored yeah. by Niall Rogers. And uh, yeah, you're, you're right. It didn't it didn't feel quite right. Um, yeah. Now, obviously, Landis had had a very successful collaboration with Eddie Murphy on uh, the, the excellent trading places in coming to America previously. So they they right, worked yeah. together before. Um, but this was, you know, this was early nineties and this was kind of the, the, the height of, of some of the, some of these action movies that were, that were coming out around this time. Um, some of them not so good. I mean, we already talked about, well, um, I, I, I wouldn't say the, the peak of the action for hero films was, it was, it was on the, the downside at this point. Cause you know, we're, we're talking, talking post Terminator two. Yes. Cause we, uh, am I correct in saying that um, Last Action Hero came out the same year? Uh, that's a really good question. I don't know. It was certainly around that time, yes. Because that was the mark of um, 
No, it was the year before. Right. So the last action hero had come out, and that was really the death knell of, of for those kind of films because it 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 didn't do very well. I wouldn't say it bombed, but it didn't do very well because you know you had a Steven Spielberg film that came out two weeks before it, Jurassic Park, which you know just destroyed the competition that summer. It changed the face of yeah cinema, didn't it? Well, yeah, because I mean I, the the action hero films they had they had run dry they really had i mean you know you know last action hero i mean i have to say arnie was actually very good in it but the story itself it was just bloated and just you know trying to do something and it's just not a great film no. i'm, not, well, I'm well, not a fan of it well we talked about as well in our eastwood podcast one of the movie hells that you picked and rightly so was the rookie mm which obviously was a, yeah. just a couple of years before this as well. So um, so you're right. The action, the action movie was still very popular, but it, it had changed somewhat and not necessarily for the better. Um, the other thing was, uh, and I, I, watched, um, I watched some interviews that I found uh, with Eddie Murphy um, that, that were done around the time of... of uh, Beverly Hills Cop 3 and he uh you know he said that he sort of grew up on on Bond movies and you know was a big fan of of those sort of action movies and Denzel Washington and Wesley Snipes had, had had some success you know a few years earlier in their career with with action movies um that that, that you know had been a bit tonally a little bit more serious than what Eddie Murphy was was you know, famous for doing. Uh, so one of the things he did in this film, and I think to its detriment slightly, was he, his rationale was this was 10 years on from the original Beverly Hills Cop story. And the yeah. character of Axel Foley had matured, had grown up somewhat. Okay. So he chose to play him slightly more serious than he had in the previous two movies and that was the thing that was the thing that had always worked um you know the original beverly hills cop was was originally a a, a story for stallone a script for stallone that um that he passed on and 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 you know eddie yeah. murphy bought the the humor to the character and you know improvised a lot of his dialogue and and you know it became the the, the, the film that it was um so you know this this decision to have Axel um, Foley slightly more serious, I, th I think was 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 possibly a mistake. Eddie Murphy was obviously one of the producers of this film as well, so he did have quite a lot of creative control as to its direction. Um, and the story itself, I mean, this was written by Stephen E. D'Souza, and it was kind of pitched as a sort of die hard in a in a theme park right yeah which you, you know it, it really didn't work because they created this fictional theme park called wonder world which was obviously sort of a play on on disney but it was actually shot at universal studios <laughs> yeah they should have called it wally world yeah that would have been i, I, would, I would have rather seen it take place in wally world yeah but yeah i mean that was, I mean, I saw this film on TV late one night when I was used to do night security in a in a construction yard, and um, even then, 
I could tell that they had used Universal Studios because they used the um, the earthquake ride, didn't well, they? And they just put some what looked like a, a bit like Cylons, but not because they couldn't pay for the license fee. Exactly. They they used they used as you correctly said the earthquake ride, um, and that the, they did they they redressed Cylons from the Battlestar Galactica, um, uh, a, you know, showcase thing that they had there. And yeah, I mean, it, it really, well, first of all, I mean, when he gets to, essentially what happens is that probably the best part of the film is the opening, actually, because there's a, there's a, a bust that goes wrong and um, yeah. uh, Eddie Murphy's um, boss, uh, you know, Todd from, from, from the other two movies, the only one apart from him and Judge Reinhold is, is Billy Rosewood and um, yeah. The guy who played and Serge, uh, Serge, yeah, uh, but and and then yeah. and then the guy who plays Todd, um, his 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 boss, his his wisecracking boss, played by Gil Hill, um, mm. were the only ones that actually appeared in this film uh, that reprised their roles. But you know, there's a bus that goes wrong, and Todd is actually shot and killed in this, and obviously Foley wants revenge, and he wants to find out who the who the killer was. Now, one one of the things that that kind of let this down right from the get go was even the even the gunplay in this wasn't realistic or well done. Um, there's a scene at the beginning where <laughs> Axel Foley has a Colt forty five automatic pistol and fires sixty shots without reloading. <laughs> and it's like what <laughs> so yeah y- y- you know it, they have this set up and he looks through some clues and he finds you know that this this is registered the van that got, that got away was registered to this um uh wonder world and also towel found in one of the cases with with the wonder world logo on it so it leads him well, to uh well, it wasn't the van. They had found uh, the ID that they used. Uh, they found on one of the dead bodies. Uh, oh, no. Okay. I got it. The ID they used to rent the van. That's right. Was from a wallet that was stolen from Wonderwall. Yes. And then, and then, and then in the, in, in, and the, 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 and then the thing that the guns were hidden in were wrapped in Wonderworld towels, which was a bit, which was a bit, you know, daft of the, of, of, of the uh, assassins, really. <laughs> yeah. But there you go. It was That's so straight right. away, the, you know, the, the story here in the script is a bit weak. Um, you know, this obviously sends Axel Foley uh, to see his good friend, um, uh, Billy Rosewood, who now has a ridiculous title and is working oh, uh, God, quite yeah. high up in um, in part of the Beverly Hills uh, Police Department that overlooks various areas of of, of California, and um, he ends up going to, you know, Axel ends up going to investigate uh, Wally uh, Wonderworld. I want to call it Wally World now. We've said that Wonderworld. I wish yeah. it was Wally World. Yeah. Um, it would have been much. <laughs> it would have been. It would have been a nice tie-in between those two worlds to think that Axel Foley existed in the same world as the Grizzlies. Exactly. That would have been quite a funny, um, funny crossover. But there you go. Um, so yeah. he he goes to this, and uh, you, you know you've got this really s- scene that's 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 largely foreshadowing and doesn't serve any other purpose than to to 
introduce us to uh, one of the beautiful, you know, love interest uh, females that's, that's in this film, um, where you see the essentially it, it, it's a vi- almost like a video of the uh, <laughs> of the earthquake ride with with dressed up Cylons in it. And um, yeah. he ends up getting into a chase uh, with a guy through the theme park. And um, th- th- there's this like spider um, sort of ride, big wheel ride, carousel, carousel thing. Yeah. 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 That yeah, he jumps, yeah. he jumps on in front of a, a, a horribly obvious cameo from George Lucas, <laughs> of all people. Right. <laughs> the the director's cameos in this are all horribly o- obvious. I mean, you've got George Lucas as a disgruntled uh, visitor. Yeah. You've got um, Joe Dante as a police officer yes. when he's being bailed out of uh, out of prison, and also you've got ray, ray harryhausen yeah at the bar yeah and this whole bit when uh, axel foley is uh, wanted for shooting uncle bob yes uncle bob being the version of of walt disney paul van hoven's in it as well going did you hear somebody shot uncle bob? oh yeah 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 no, exactly <laughs> exactly so, like, so, ooh, yeah, it's, ooh. it's very winky it's very winky and not very ooh, well done it just, um it, it, yeah i i know he likes using directors in his films but oh my god it was just too much on the nose ooh. yeah no i mean you know this this really didn't work and um no. what what you get is you have this scene where you know it's it's Axel Foley action hero. So while he's while he's ch- having this chase out um, on the carousel ride, um, one of the you know the controls get uh, shot at and gears get ripped off the mechanism and basically these little children that are on the ride uh, become in danger because one of the carriages starts hanging off right at the top of the ride and they're hanging on for yeah. dear life. And the only person that can rescue them is Axel Foley. But this is all done very poorly, I have to say. It wasn't done very well. You can you can see the stuntman. You can. I mean, you, you can see the stuntman. And then when it comes to Eddie Murphy, it's all blue screen. Oh, uh, bad blue screen projection. at that with, with, yeah. no, with no real sense of gravity to any of it. You can almost tell that Eddie Murphy's stood you know, pretending to be balancing or holding on to a rope or whatever. It's very poor. The other thing is Niall Rogers' score for this adds no tension whatsoever. No. So you've got what's supposed to be a breathtaking, stun edge-of-your-seat sequence that really isn't. Um, it just looks really bad and doesn't work and is kind of cheesy and obviously... Axel rescues the kids just in the nick of time and they jump out of the way just as the carriage falls that would crush them. But none of this is is particularly well made, in my opinion. It's not well directed, well acted, well shot. The effects are bad and the score just doesn't work with this at all. I just want to comment on the directing. I think I think that Landis was brought on last minute. I don't think he was involved in the development of this film. So, yeah, I don't think he had much time to do it. I don't think it... It's this weird thing. It doesn't kind of fit his style either. 
No, no. I mean, it, it just feels very, um, you know, it does. It's funny because it was a long time in the making, meaning there was 1987. Mm. You had Beverly Hills Cop 2, which was, you know, as I said, directed by late Tony Scott. Um, and this didn't come around till 94, but it had been in development hell for quite some time. I mean, they'd had a story about Axel Foley coming over to London and working with the police over here. And they had all these different oh, ideas. That's right. I heard that story. Yeah. yeah and then we yeah. end up with this, you know, suddenly the producers are gone. Uh, a lot of the cast is gone. And, you, you, you know, you've got this this script, which is sort of pitched as, you know, die hard in a... Uh, in a theme park, Joel Silver was attached to produce at one point and dropped out last minute. So I think, you know, Mason Uffield kind of took place just because he was, like I said, under contract with, um, with Paramount at the time. And then this is all happening at the same time as you've got Eddie Murphy suddenly wanting to, to, you know, approach the character yeah. with a bit more seriousness. Um, and, and I don't know, you've got, you know, you've got, Hector Elizondo re replacing obviously what was supposed to be the Taggart character. Nothing wrong with Hector as an actor. He's great. But, you, you know, all of it felt rather, um, I don't know, rather forced. And again, you've got good people in this. You've got John Saxon as one of the bad guys. I mean, essentially, it turns out that this is a, um, a money counterfeiting uh, cover so that they're using yeah. this uh, Wonder World as a cover for a um as i said a money money counterfeiting uh ring and much to the you know unbeknownst to the uh the the, the park manager the guy that's sort of uncle dave or whatever that's based on clearly based on a sort of walt disney um type yeah. type man and uh yeah you end up i mean you, you know i think in some respects the idea of a, a chase and a shootout in a theme park should be an exciting thing you know it could be quite cool but in in this it really doesn't i don't know it just doesn't work and it all feels rather forced and and the jokes aren't particularly yeah. funny uh it's it's less realistic than the other films you know in terms of the action oh, i know i mean he's at the end he grabs this stupid gun that's got everything it's got a was it a fax on it? Oh, it's, it's got, got a microwave oven. Yeah, I mean, you've got this. You've yeah. got this chicks with guns video thing, which is quite good. Um, yeah. <laughs> which Serge is is well. That's the other thing. Serge has gone from an an art gallery, um, you, you know, running an art gallery, which he did in in the first film, <laughs> to sort of being. I forget what the name of the company was. It was something like Bev. Um, Oh, what was it? Beverly well, they Hills. were selling arms with class. Yeah, you know, yeah. Was, you know, oh, and people. horrible foreshadowing where he gives them this key ring that's supposed to blind yes. people. And he, he gives it to him and you can think, oh, you so know that this is going to be used. It's almost like it was almost like Eddie Murphy was trying to make it like a, a James Bond, you know, cue sequence or something. But it didn't really work. <laughs> you saying that makes a lot of sense now having seen the re film recently that's probably why it doesn't work as a bevy hills cop film because they are trying to do a james bond film yeah so yeah i can i can see your point on that um but not with the panache yeah, or I, style I, of a james bond no, film i might no, add <laughs> you know the whole bit where he's trying to get this stupid gun to work and 
you know, the security guards, the well-trained security guards who can't hit anything. Well, yeah, he hides behind a bench. This is what's hilarious. He hides behind a park bench. <laughs> well, how about when, when Hector Alonso enters the park and there's the guy up above him shooting at him and he's got a clear shot and he misses. Yet uh, Hector can just shoot him straight away from from the ground. That just made no sense. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I mean, and the other thing is, this ends up, and again, I, I kind of didn't like this. Is Billy um, uh, Detective Flint, which is the Hector Elizondo character, and Axel all end up shot. All right, yes. and they try and turn yeah. it into a joke. It was it's almost like that. You you hated the bit on the. Um, the baggage reclaim thing at the end of the rookie. Oh, God, well, this, yeah, this had that yeah. kind of feel to it, actually. It was it, it did, was like a they, joke yeah. that didn't really work. Um it didn't really work, no. I also I have to say, uh, this film has like the worst worst use of Stephen McHattie I've ever seen. Oh yes. Now Stephen McHattie is a really good actor. He's got such a distinctive voice. But just to make him turn out to be, you know, the twist bad guy. Yeah. It was just like, you knew straight away when he stopped Axel Foley from chasing those guys down. In the opening scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You knew he was a bad guy. And it's just, it was so stupid. It just, it wasn't, it wasn't very good. But I mean, such a waste of the guy. You know, Stephen McHattie sort of deserves better roles than that. Yeah. He's got, he's in 13 at the moment, isn't he? That, uh, that, that tv show which is um which is fairly decent but uh yeah i mean you know um so so it, it kind of you know it, it ends and at the end you know they've got this horribly cheesy scene where um you, you know in wheelchairs because they've all been shot uh billy axel and and flint all get um you, you know have to stand up in front of crowds to get applauded at Wonder World and they've even got a new character at Wonder World which is Axel Fox which comes complete with a a Detroit Lions uh, college football jacket and everything and yeah. it's just like and then oh, it was so and, and then and then you know the the, the fitty um uh you know, security woman that that he's been flirting with through the whole film. You know, takes him off, and and Eddie winks at the camera as it's a freeze frame, and it's just like, oh dear, you know, this 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 was cheese, and this really didn't work, and it is definitely by far the weakest uh, in the Beverly Hills Cop series um, of, of films. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, I looked through. Um, john landis's list of credits and i thought yeah you know this 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 isn't this just doesn't seem we you know we were saying about how all of his films or, or the films we talked about previously you know the characters you really bought into them and it worked and you were with them and all this well this was polled the opposite of that i mean axel foley as a character i love from the other beverly hills cop movies and uh, same with billy rosewood and whatever but in this it's just so silly and so false that that, that you don't feel with them at all because you just think what they're doing is stupid, <laughs> you know, and, and, yeah. and this, this, this whole, you know, this whole production to me did not seem up to the mark at all. So I don't really know what was going on, but uh, for me, it didn't work. And hence why I've chosen it as movie hell <laughs> for Landis. Yeah. 
Well, the, the thing about Landis is he, he is one of these directors who had, you know, he, he got to this point where his films then started to decline, the quality-wise. And I don't know if that was due to him or how he was treated. I was going to say, do you think it had something to do with the Twilight Zone aftermath? I don't know. It could have been. I know that uh, with Burke and Hare, that the cut that went out wasn't his director's cut, that it was a cut that was forced onto him by Ealing Studios. So I know there's a lot of stuff in there that he wanted to keep that was taken out. And I don't mind Burke and Hare. I think Burke and Hare is all right. Um, I mean, I saw it on TV recently and, I, you know, I, I quite enjoyed it for what it was, but it wasn't classic Landis. Right. You know, it was it was nice. I mean, it had some of the, the jokes. I think that I think one of the problems it had, it was a little too self-referential. I mean, they had the whole doctor doctor joke from uh, Spies Like Us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You remember that one? Doctor, doctor, yeah. doctor, doctor. I mean, Spies Are Like Us works because you've got two characters who are trying to pretend to be doctors who are not and don't know anybody's name. So they're just going, doctor, doctor, <laughs> doctor, doctor. I think, I think there's a problem with a lot of films lately where they reference other stuff for the sake of it mm -hmm. and not for as it being a story point. I agree. I mean, it's that point yeah. when, I, you know, I love, and we were talking about this earlier in the podcast, but I love Easter eggs and stuff. I really love that. But the thing is, when the Easter egg then becomes winky and brings attention to itself, then it starts becoming slightly tacky. It does. And just that just brings me on to my pick for Movie Hell. Ah, there you go. Now, we waited. We waited uh, 17 years for this film. We wanted it and we got it. Blues Brothers 2000. Right, I have to confess, I've no, I've never seen, seen this it. film. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I've not seen yeah. it, so I'm not well, going to be able to add much to this. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the problem is, it's a film that is just too many years too late. The thing that made the Blues Brothers was the relationship between Jake and Elwood Blues. You know, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd. That that is that's the core of that film. The problem is, if you take one of them away, it just doesn't work. And that is one of the problems that Blues Brothers Two Thousand has: is it just cannot escape the shadow of John Belushi. Throughout this whole film, lots of characters who reappear from the original have to say to, you know, Dan Aykroyd's character. Sorry to hear about Jake. It's a line of dialogue you hear throughout the whole film. Sorry to hear about Jake. Sorry to hear about Jake. And it is a film that's just living under the shadow of that. It just cannot escape it. And as hard as he tries, John Goodman is just not a, a good replacement. He just he cannot fill that role. I know he's supposed to be another character, but it just doesn't work. Throw in the fact that they put in a little chart, a little kid in there as well, and you know, and also uh, Miles Dyson from Terminator Two. And you just, it's, it's, it's a real mess of a film. And what it is, it's, it's going through the same beats as the original film, but there's no drive. They're just getting the band back together, right? Because, because that's what we did in the first film. You know, we're on a mission from God. 
Why? Well, because that's what we did in the first film. You know, we're in a car chase because that's what we did in the first film. There's, it's it's so annoying. It's literally a rehash of the of the first film, and it's supposed to be set what twenty years later or something. Is it? Is that the idea? Yeah. 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 I mean, it starts off with Elwood being released from prison and he waits outside the prison gates for a whole day until Frank Oz, who's playing the prison warden. I mean, they just, I mean, I'll give it its due. It does this thing where they take the characters from the original one and they progress them. So, so it's not Frank Oz still playing the same. He's playing the same character, but he's now the prison warden. He's not, you know, still working at the uh, exit point oh i see yeah yeah Yeah. okay and so he goes out there and he tells elwood about his brother now (laughs) i would have thought by now that somebody would have told him and it just sort of continues to make so many bad mistakes i mean they just again they rehash the the scenes with james brown and instead of um Jake seen the light. You get uh, Miles Dyson seen the light. Oh, Joe Joe Morton. Joe Joe Morton. Is yeah, yeah. Name, but yeah. He, no, forever he and ever, he's just going to be Miles Dyson. <laughs> it's because he played him so well. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he sees the light, and this really horrible CGI bit where he flies up into the air. So you don't have like you know in the original, you had the the dancers who were jumping up into the air. You see him fly off into the the sky, and he's because he's a sheriff, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He's like um, uh, he's like quite high up, and he didn't know that he was Cab Conway's son and all this thing, and uh, you know, but it's just uh, uh... <laughs> it's just so painful. What, what, about, what about the soundtrack? Film. What's the soundtrack like? But uh, can I just say, but this this the well, I'll get onto that. But I just want to say my point is, there's this horrible CGI bit where he goes from a copper to actually wearing the the hat, the sunglasses, and the black suit. All oh, right, and he flies back down, and there's it's just horrible. The soundtrack in it, there's a couple of good songs in it, but it's most of it's forgettable. Or um, you know, really, the the Pixar music in this is terrible. Also, you have a cameo at the beginning by BB King who says he's off to Memphis and it's, you know, you were talking about horrible foreshadowing in Beverly Hills Cop 3. Yeah. Really bad foreshadowing in this. It's like, yeah, I'm trying to do something different. I'm going to Memphis. And, you know, and then when you hear they're going to go to Memphis, it's like, Oh, what's the, what's the chances that they're going to run into BB King again? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? And they do, they have this battle of the bands this time, which this is the other thing they throw into this film is that they have, a voodoo and magic because you have um elwood you have uh, mighty mac is the john goodman character and um miles dyson they they get turned into zombies oh god this sounds <laughs> awful it does sound it terrible it's really awful and also the fact is you get to spend a bit more time with the band and I have to say, the amount of screen time they were given in the original was, was the right amount. Now they're kind of, again, trying to sort of shoulder the film. It doesn't work. Oh, my it's God. Just, uh, it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's the sequel we all asked for, and we got it, and it's just awful. And it's just, uh, it, was, it was painful to watch it again. I, I remember we... It was the first film we watched on Sky Movies when we got Sky. 
And the first time we got satellite in the house, and that was the first, and we were, you know, you know, there's my dad watching it. Who is a massive fan of the original, right? So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was such a letdown. I mean, it was just, it's, sometimes you've got to leave these films alone. I mean, the Blues Brothers was a standoff film. It, you know, it is perfect from beginning to end, in my opinion. And, and yeah, we wanted the sequel and we got it. And it was, it was too many years too late. And it was just, you know, they didn't, they just were rehashing it and it just didn't work. Yeah, it's silly, isn't it? To just do the, the same yeah. shit again and, and um, yeah. you know, not do it as well as well is is, is, is bad, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's painful to watch. I mean, uh, this time instead of there being Nazis, we've got Russians and also um, some rednecks as well, redneck survivalists. <laughs> And they do this bit where a guy has a boat full of explosives land on him and blows up. And you think, yeah, he would be dead. And he turns up at the end. Oh, dear. No. God, they didn't do that in the original Blues Brothers. Yes, they had a car that flipped over and a car that flew up into the sky (laughs) with two Nazis in it. But when they came back down to Earth, they were dead. They were flattened. They weren't coming back from anything, you know? I don't know why I never saw this at the time. I just, I think I just didn't fancy it. Because again, I, you know, I, like yeah. you, I quite liked, I had good memories of, of you know, home video, watching the uh, original or, you know, on television, whatever. But um, yeah, when this one came out, I do sort of remember it. But I think it, I think it was panned fairly quickly <laughs> by was, people. Yeah. And uh I, it was just one of those ones. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've got loads of them. You know, films that you just don't get round to seeing, and uh, and this was one of them. On the subject, actually, of Landis and sequels, right? I've yeah. never seen. Apparently, there's there is a sequel to American Werewolf in London, right? Called American Werewolf in Paris. Is that right? That's correct. I've never seen this. Is this any good? Landis got nothing to do with it. Oh, hasn't he? Okay. I thought no, I thought he was involved. No. It's, it's it's awful, and they have CGI werewolves in it. Oh my god! Our whole our whole idea is there's, there's like a coven of them, and it's got uh, Julie Delphi in it. Yeah, I know Julie Delphi. Yeah, I saw that she was in it. But as I said, I've, it's 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 another one of those films that has passed me by, and I've not actually seen. And uh, I just wondered whether yes. it was any good or not. But, no, just worth skipping. I'm I mean, is, is it an official sequel? Or is it just they've taken the title and the idea? I am not sure. I think, um, I you know, I think it's sort of name only. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's got kind of, maybe John Landis has got a credit, but I, I've never seen it, so I don't know. It's, it's something I've not wanted to know. Well, to no, I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But yeah, it's uh, not very good. Mm, interesting, interesting. So, yeah, I, I think that's a sort of perfect place to to end it. Yeah, <laughs> on a town note. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we've celebrated two great movies of his. So yeah, yeah, and you know, and the end of the day, he's done a, a lot more that, that have been great. And um, off the top of my head, you know. You've got, um, well, Innocent Blood is worth checking out. Coming to America, uh, Free Amigos, Spies Like Us, 
um, trading places, you know, uh, and also sort of earlier work like the Kentucky Fried Movie, and I would I would like to see Schlock, which is the first film he directed. Yes, well, he was in that, wasn't he? Made up in, by Rick Baker. He was he was the monkey. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I've not seen that one, but that does look quite interesting, actually. <laughs> He's a director whose early work was really strong, but then it sort of hit a point and it didn't. I don't know. So he lost something. And it's 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 never been quite the same. And I don't know if it's to do the fact that he just didn't have the control he used to, or, you know, or if it's like the Francis Ford Coppola syndrome where, you know, he just lost something in the... In, in the jungle <laughs> yeah because yeah I, you know because with coppola he, he he never made a film a great film again after apocalypse now oh uh, came close once or twice i was gonna say i, I think mean, dracula is amazing it, it, it i enjoy it but it's not a godfather or the conversation yeah no it's, it's not you know, i agree it's it's fun it's fun i have i have problems with that film do you um, okay what what with dracula yeah I, I, yeah i mean for one keanu reeves oh well yeah okay there, there's a reason for that but that's a that's another yeah, story I mean, but yeah you know, gary oldman's brilliant in it amazing yeah you know and he, he does make dracula his own i think i also think that um Anthony Hopkins is in a completely different film. But <laughs> <laughs> well, with that accent, yeah. he plays Van Helsing <laughs> way over the top. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy it. I mean, I do enjoy it. But if you stack it up against the film like The Godfather and Apocalypse Now, they're just—it's not the same. They're just not on the same playing field. Yeah. Well, this this actually, you know, with a lot of directors we've talked about, is is in some cases with them a theme with some of them that they do really good work earlier in their career and then not so good. Um, you know, the, the only one who's got better as he's gone on is Ben Eastwood. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know what it quite, what it is. It, if it's a case of that, they come out strong and they do all their good work at the beginning. And after that, they don't really have anything or if the kind of control they had originally it got dwindled and taken away and, you know, they start getting micromanaged by other people, by the studios. It's, I really don't know. It's, 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 I think it's different for, you know, for each director as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think in Landis's case and, 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 you know, back to sort of a final point with, with Beverly Hills Cop 3 is I do sort of feel that because they, they'd obviously had a very good relationship Eddie Murphy and uh, and Landis because of you know trading places and coming to America and whatever. I think um, you know you know Landis let you know Eddie Murphy make some choices that that perhaps weren't the right ones to go with that particular yeah. character, and that's really why it didn't work because Beverly Hills Cop yeah. is about Axel Foley, and you, you know he is somewhat different in this film. You know they try and slot a few bits in, but where he does his usual stuff, but um, which is very Eddie Murphy anyway. Um, but, you know, trying to make it more serious um, didn't really fit the rest of the tone of the film, which was very silly. So, yeah. yeah. Yes. But, yeah, but as I say, um, do check out his earlier work. Um, 
they are great. They are classics of the eighties. I think the eighties were definitely his period. Oh, without a doubt, shine during that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, do do check out his check out his work if you haven't. So that just leads us to sign off in our usual manner. Um, so Keith, where can we find your work? Okay, go to YouTube and put in British Isles E Y L E S, and you'll find. Um, short films that I've written, produced, and directed to watch. Uh, so you can find my work at independentrunnings.com. So uh, check out the podcast on iTunes. Uh, we're on Mixtape as well and YouTube. Just search Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. Uh, you can also uh, follow us at Facebook and on Twitter. Just search Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. So... Thank you for listening and uh, do uh, check out our next one. And uh, we've, we've actually got some uh, some specials coming up this month. We've got two. Yay. I'm not saying what they are, but you can probably guess what they're going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. But yes. <laughs> that's it. So until next time. See ya. Take care.